Well, good morning. You could take your Bible again and turn with me to Acts, try Romans, Romans chapter 8. And our text is what was read to you earlier in the service, the latter part of that chapter, beginning in verse 39, that asks, what then shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 8, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that text on page 944, that copy of the scripture. For those of you who may be visiting with us and not know me, my name is Jonathan Threlfall, and I serve as lead pastor for uh, preaching and teaching here at Trinity Baptist Church. I'm so glad that you're here, all of you. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, This is a really special day for us. Uh, We're concluding a series that has taken us about 11 weeks, and that we're calling Behold Your God, Discovering Who God Is and What He's Like. And our purpose over the course of the series has been to take each Sunday to focus on a particular attribute of God. Uh, and this, uh, this Sunday, uh, we're not focusing on an attribute of God, but we're focusing on what we maybe call a stance or a posture of God, and that is that God is for us. Up until this point, we've looked at the fact that God is holy, He's triune, He's good, He's wise, He is love, He's righteous, He's omniscient, He's sovereign, He's faithful. Last week, we looked at the fact that God is glorious, and now we're looking at the fact that God is for us. God is for us. My mom told me a story about something that happened to her when she was a girl. She was with a group of friends, and uh, one of those friends of hers had a crush on another guy, on a guy, and, and really liked him. And uh, they, were, they were together in a group, and the guy turned toward turned towards some girls and said, you want to go out with me? And the girl that had the crush on this guy thought that he was talking to her <laughs> and realized to her, and, and she said, I'd love to, and realized to her embarrassment, he was talking to the, the girl right beyond her. And there's that crushing sense that what she thought was for her wasn't for her at all. You know what it feels like to have someone who's not for you. It's going to be crushing. On the other hand, you also know what it is like to have someone for you, or maybe in a few days when you look under the Christmas tree and you look at the presents, maybe some of your kids are looking forward to this, you see the label on the present and you look at it and it is for you. You know what I like about that anecdote from my mother's life and from, it wasn't her by the way, it was somebody else, my anecdote from my mother's life and also this idea of these Christmas presents being for us is that it illustrates a couple things that are really important about this text. One is the meaning of that preposition for. It means to, to be on the behalf of something or for the benefit of someone. So when someone is cheering for you or when someone has a gift for you or when someone has time for you, it's all for your benefit. It's all for your good. But it also illustrates the importance of having God's posture being toward us for our good. Because imagine that those attributes that I read off to you that we had studied over this past 11 weeks, imagine that those were not for you, but actually against you. That would be far more crushing than an embarrassing social experience. That would be like life unraveling. But in this passage, we have this phrase in verse 31 that God is 
for us. God is for us. And what I want to do in the next few moments is explain the meaning of this phrase and how Paul unfolds it throughout the rest of this passage. And the more I have studied this, I, I said in the, the email this past week that I sent out to our thing, All Things Trinity that uh, prepositions don't normally make me cry, but this preposition for, I found myself shedding tears over. For. God is for me. God is for you. And the more I looked at this, I turned it over and over and over again, just like I take a beautiful diamond and examine every single facet of it. The more I looked at this, the more I thought this belongs as the, the crown jewel of every Christian. I mean, this, if there was a candle with a God is for you fragrance, you should have it burning in your house all day long. I mean, this, if you could have an album on repeat, it should be this one. God is for us. And the closer I got to it, the more I realized that this is one of those passages, this is one of those phrases, it's almost like a drop of dew in a garden. You see a little drop of dew on the blade of a leaf, and you get closer and closer and closer to it, and you discover that through that dew drop, the entire garden is refracted in miniature. And so it seems to be in this phrase, God is for us, that the entire sweeping scope of the Bible is, is, is in a synopsis right here in this one statement, God is for us. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from the very beginning when God puts human beings into a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, and gives everything for their good, and to the very end when finally in the book of Revelation, human beings are in a city and God is with them for their good, and we see encapsulated from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, this phrase, God is for us. And so I think that this is a, a beautiful synopsis of all, of all Scripture. And I don't say that just for sentimental reasons. I say that because of the placement of this phrase in the passage, because of what comes before it and becomes a, because of what comes after it. So if you look at the Bible, look at the text in verse 31, this, this verse begins with a question, what then shall we say to these things? So what Paul is doing is he's pointing to something that came before this if God is for us statement. What should we say to these things? It's almost as if Paul has come to the pinnacle of a, of a theological mountain, which is what the book of Romans is. He's, imagine that you're on a tour with Paul, the apostle, up this mountain, and you've climbed up to Romans 8, verse 31. Now, what do you do when you get to the top of a mountain? You're like, oh, that's cool, let's go back down. No, you stay there. You stay there because you want to see this grand vista, and, and you want to just drink it in. That's what you do when you get to the top of the mountain. You don't just go turn around. And so it's almost as if Paul is saying, I, I brought you here. Now, what do you think? He takes this, uh, this, this hand gesture toward at least as far back as chapter 5 that begins, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? And not only that, but we have God's Spirit living within us who sheds abroad in our hearts the very love of God. And, and not only that, but despite the, the forces of sin, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and not only that, be, be beyond the struggle that we experience that he, dis, that he discusses in chapter 7, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he says in chapter 8 and verse 1. 
And so he's taking you and directing your attention through the, the mountains and the valleys, uh, the, the crests and the crevices of this journey that we're on. He says, now, what do you think about that? What, what are you going to say about this? So I, I say that this verse, God is for us, this phrase, God is for us, is, a, is an encapsulation of all of Scripture, not only because of the message we know from the book, from the whole book, Genesis to Revelation, but also because of what comes before it in the context. Paul is saying, what do you think about this? And because of what comes after it. What comes after this phrase, God is for us, is a cascade of rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who will lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. You see what's going on here. It's question after question after question. You know, the power of rhetorical questions is that it invites the audience not only to consider how obvious the answer is, but also suggests more to the audience, to the hearer. You know, the commercials have picked up on the power of rhetorical questions, one insurance company in particular. Can you think of it? Did you know that if you switch to this particular company, you could save 15% on your car insurance? <laughs> and that question is followed up by a rhetorical question. Did the little pig cry, we, 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 all the way home? Yeah, of course he did. Everybody knows that. Was Abe Lincoln obvious? You know what it does? It invites us to consider, it was like, obvious, of, of course. But, you, but more than that, what Paul is doing here when he is asking these rhetorical questions, he's not only saying the answer is so obvious, but it leads us to more and more conclusions about what it means that God is for us. Because there are in our hearts questions about whether or not this is true. And it is these questions, actually I would put, the, put it in this way, it is these suspicions in our hearts that require these rhetorical questions, because each one of us wonders at times whether God is really for us. Each one of us is thinking, could it be that God's going to hold something against me? And man, I feel so guilty sometimes. You have no idea what I've done. Or this thing that God's brought into my life, is this really good for me? It seems bad. Or I wonder if God's holding something good back for me. See, these are the suspicions. It's the atmosphere of suspicion that Paul brings us to the platform, the summit of Romans 8, to smother those suspicions with a celebration of what it means that God is for us, okay? All that was introductory to help you understand the importance of that statement. Now, here's how this passage is divided. Two parts. There is the evidence that God is for us, that's verse 31 and 32. And then there is the implications that God is for us. That's verse 33 to 39. All right, the God is for us, the evidence and the implications, okay? So let's take the, the, let's take the evidence first. Paul says this, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, where's the evidence? It's the next verse. He who did not spare his own son, look at verse 32, but gave him up for us all. The evidence that God is for us is that God has given Jesus for us. That's the evidence. Now, that evidence may not strike you as particularly amazing, but I want to 
draw this out for you. <clears throat> I want to point, to you, point out to you several things about this evidence. First of all, this evidence that God is for you <clears throat> is historical evidence. Right? This is not just wishful thinking. Uh, you may be here this morning and you're accustomed to thinking of Christianity or religion as a kind of, uh, a kind of drug, to be honest. It's just kind of a way that people uh, cope with the hardship of reality or a way in which um, maybe powerful, elite people control less knowledgeable people with their moral codes. And this is just a way that, this is something cultural that people use to control one another or something that the weak and downtrodden people need to survive in a uh, hard world. Uh, for example, uh, Karl Marx has famously said that religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. And th this is a very common mindset, that this is what religion is, that this idea that I'm loved, I'm, I'm embraced, uh, someone is for me, is just kind of an imagination that all of us need to cope. But, but let me just, what drug can raise a man from the dead after he's been dead for three days? Th this is not... This is not opium. This is history. This is, not, this is not the opiate of the masses. This is not mere wishful thinking. This happened in around 30 AD when a man came out of a tomb and rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds of people. The evidence that God is for you is not just the wishful thinking of your heart. It is actually, it's coming in history. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And people saw him and wrote about him. And this is recorded for us to know that this idea that God is for you is not just a drug to sedate you to your sufferings in this life. It is actually God's way of breaking into history and showing us who he is through the work and person of Jesus Christ. This evidence is historical evidence, right? But secondly, this evidence, I'm going I'm to put it this way, it is complete evidence, and by that I mean this, the evidence is that God gave Jesus to us. That means that Jesus, everything, everything of what he did and who he is, is for us. Here, here's what I mean. Look, look at the text again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, is saying this. God's not holding any part of Jesus back from you. Jesus is for you in his incarnation. That is, God became flesh. We, we sing about this at Christmas time. We quote these verses from Luke 2, where these angels come to the shepherds and they say, There is a Savior that's born today in the city of Bethlehem, in the, in the city of David, Christ the Lord. You know, I missed a part of that quotation. It actually begins this way. For you is born today in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The whole point of the incarnation is that it's for you. It's for us. Jesus is for us in his life. As he walked upon this earth, he prayed for his disciples. In John 17, it's this incredible prayer that's recorded. You really should read it. Jesus says, I don't pray just for these right now, his 11 disciples that were present there. I pray for those who will believe on me. He prayed in his life for you and me. He's for us. But he's not only for us in his incarnation and in his life, he's for us in his death. Jesus died for us. He's not only for us in his death, he's also for us in his resurrection. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, He was raised for our justification. He's not only for us in His resurrection, He's for us in His as ascension. As, as the King, He said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. He says, I'm going to be with you, for you, for all time. Jesus is not only for us in His ascension, He's also for us in what theologians call His session. That is, He is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us. That's what this text is saying. It says He's praying for us. Jesus from beginning to end, the complete Jesus, the whole Jesus. He's for us. And this is the evidence. It's historical, it's complete, but it's also logical. By that I mean it invites us to reason this way. If God has given us Jesus, He's given us everything else with Jesus because there's no good outside Jesus. That's the logic of this. Because, because there is really nothing good outside Jesus, in giving you Jesus, God has given you everything. That's the literal meaning of this. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That means it is a mistake for us to seek some good or evidence of God's goodness outside of Jesus. Because to demand that God give some other evidence of his goodness that is somehow beside or outside the scope of what Jesus has provided is to demand something bigger than God, which there is nothing bigger than God, which is another word for that is idolatry. This is historical evidence, it's complete evidence, it's logical evidence, and it's conclusive evidence. It's almost as if God, with this statement, as a judge, he just hammers down the gavel. He says, no more. There's, no more is to be said. I'm for you. I've settled it. So this is the evidence that God is for us. Now, before I move on to the implications of this evidence, I just <clears throat> have to say this. If you reject Christ, God cannot be for you. If you reject Christ, God cannot be for you. If, if you're very sick with cancer and the doctor told you, I've got a treatment for you, and you say, no, thank you, what good will that treatment do you if you don't take it? If someone says, I've got a check for you, it's a million dollars, you can pay off your mortgage, send your kids to college, maybe not, but you can... You can do a lot with this amount of money, but I got a check for you. It's not going to do you any good for you unless you deposit the check. You know what I mean? If you this morning are in a position where you have your hand to, to Jesus like this, and you're saying, no, then God cannot be for you. Maybe you're saying, hey, you're kind of talking about me as if I'm sick and poor. The Bible teaches us that all of us are in such a desperate condition, the Bible calls us dead in trespasses and sins. You may say, you know what, I'm actually a pretty decent person, actually, and that's a little offensive. In fact, I've met a lot of Christians who are a lot more biased and bigoted than I am. I'm not here to debate that point. 
All I'm here is to say that when you stand before God, he is not going to ask you whether you are a fraction of a hair less bigoted or biased than somebody down the street. He's going to ask you whether you accepted his offer of Jesus Christ so that he could be for you. And there's only one answer that will advocate for you on that day, and that is Jesus Christ is my righteousness. That's the only thing that counts. And if you refuse Jesus Christ, God cannot be for you. And if you refuse Jesus Christ, this is the sobering reality. You've got to reverse those prepositions. If God be against us, who can be for us? Nothing will advocate successfully for you in that day. Your parents can't. Your children can't. Your boss can't. No attorney could successfully advocate for you in that day. There is no hope for a person against whom God is. That is the reality. And I bear witness to you, my friend, this day, that if right now you re reject the, God's offer of Christ, God will be against you. So the, here's, the, here's what you need to do. Trust in Christ. You must trust in Him. Notice I didn't say improve your life morally. I said trust in Christ because that's really what counts and that's all that counts. For by grace we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is the evidence that God is for us. God is for us, but there's also implications of this evidence. And we see these implications uh, throughout verses uh, 30, from verse 32 to 39. And the question that we see here, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, it's almost like a tapping the first domino in a line of dominoes. It just starts knocking the rest down. It's like we have all these suspicions that are lined up in our minds, and this one just knocks these suspicions down. And let me just, th there are three main suspicions here that are lurking behind these rhetorical questions. And I'll just, I'll, I'll read them out to you and then proceed one at a time. There's a suspicion that God is holding something good from me. There's a suspicion that God will hold something against me. And then there's the suspicion that God will allow something to separate me from His love. So let's deal with the first one. There's a suspicion that God is holding something good from me. There's got to be something good that I need, God's holding it back for me. Now, the way to feed the suspicion, to get it really fat and healthy, is to compare what everyone else has with what you have. You start, I, I've, I mentioned social media, I think, last, um, last week too. You start just scrolling through your Instagram feed, and everything you see that someone else has that you don't, you wish you had, it looks really good, you are just making that suspicion just really, really strong. Why did she get married and not me? Why does he have a wife and I don't? Why does their relationship look so easy? Why do they have children and we don't? Why does he have such a magnetic personality and I don't? How is it that he has such a great job and I always struggle with that? How is it that they seem to have such good health and, and we're always sick? You see how this happens? 
We, we see what God has given to other people and immediately we conclude, maybe there's something good that God is holding back from me. Some of you thinking that right now. Why am I where I am right now and, and not where I want to be in life? Now, I think we can carefully distinguish two kinds of questions here. One, there's a question, why is God holding back that particular thing from me? You have it in your mind right now. You think you'd be happier with it, okay? Think about that. And you're asking, why would God hold that back from me, okay? The second question is this, is God holding something good from me? Those are two different questions. The first question, why, why is God holding this particular thing back from me? That job opportunity I really, really wanted, God hasn't given it to me. Why is God holding that? I think in response to that first question, we just, there, there's a couple ways we could respond. One is simply that ultimately we, we don't know right now. Some things, God works in mysterious ways. We can't always answer the question, why in, a, in, a, in some particular case, God seems to be holding something that I think would be good for me back from me, and I ask, why that thing? Why am I not having that thing? And one answer to the question is, you, we, we simply don't, it doesn't all make sense to us right now. Just as to a toddler, not being fed candy whenever he asks for it doesn't make sense to him. And it's not because his mother is capricious or a malevolent bully. It's, it's simply because his mother has a scope of understanding that is a little wider than his. And so can we not assume that God's scope of understanding is much wider than ours so that when He acts in certain ways toward us, what, what looks like deprivation is actually something wise and good. We have to assume that for certain reasons, in particular cases, we can't know. But we can make guesses. There's a verse in Psalm 119 where the psalmist reflects on God's affliction. He says, it was good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn to keep your statutes. And in some cases, you can look back and you can say, oh, that thing I so desperately wanted when I was 17 years old. Oh, that relationship that I was 23 years old and I got into and God took that relationship with me. I can look back and say, oh, it was good. It was good that God took that from me. Or it was good that what I wanted to be when I grew up when I was 12 years old, it was good that God didn't give that to me because God has so much better. I mean, we can make some guesses about why God seems to be withholding right now something that's good from me. The hymn writer Fanny Crosby was blind as a little baby. I think she was about six weeks old when people think it might have been a doctor's mistake or something happened that she lost her eyesight permanently. Why would God withhold sight from someone. I mean, it seems like if there's anything good that I need, it's my eyes. You know, Fanny Crosby said this about that question. She said, God used it. I'm sorry. She said, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank Him for this dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. Well, that seems puzzling. If you've ever sung Fanny Crosby's hymns, you'll know that she often weaves in metaphors of sight. As a blind woman, she writes this, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood, perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. What sight? Ah, the eyes of her heart. 
You see, by taking the eyes of her, her physical eyes away from her for her lifetime, God gave her even deeper vision into spiritual things, a vision that we sing about Sunday after Sunday. See, we can make these guesses about why God might in His providence have with, with, withhold something from it. We ultimately, though, in answer to the question, okay, why is God holding this thing from me, my eyesight, this relationship, this job that I want? We have to say at some point, we, we don't know, but in answer to this other question, is God good or is God withholding something good from me? The answer is He's absolutely not withholding something good from me. Why? Because He's given you Jesus. And when He's given you Jesus, He gives you everything with Jesus so that even blindness and a breakup and the loss of a job somehow in God's mysterious providence become His gifts to you. Is God holding anything good back from you? The answer from Romans 8 comes back with a resounding, no, 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 He's not holding anything back from you. If He's given you Jesus, He's given you everything. The other suspicion is this, will God hold something against me? Will God hold something against me? Look at verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, this suspicion has, boy, it has some real, real teeth to it. Why? Because everybody here in this room can think of something you've done that makes you feel really guilty when you think about it. What if that were to come up before God? What if you're standing before God and someone are coming to God and say, hey, you might not know this about her. You, you think she's okay. But did you know that she... You, you, think, you, you think you're going to let this guy have a relationship with you, but, but did you not know that multiple times, deliberately, he has... God says, that charge won't stand because it's been paid for. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died for that sin. How dare anyone bring a charge against God's elect that Jesus has already paid for? This is the confidence that we have, knowing that Jesus died and rose on our behalf. It means that every sin that you've committed is now buried under the unfathomable depths of God's forgiveness because of the cross. That's the confidence you could have. You could have that confidence because if He's given you Jesus, He's given you everything, including forgiveness, and no charge will stick. But my friends, it will hound you. The great reformer Martin Luther discovered this. There's a story that's told about him. It might be apocryphal. It might be made, made up, but it sure does resonate with his, his life and ministry. And that is the it, the, it seemed like the devil would whisper in his ear and say, Martin, you're a greedy, lecherous, lying scumbag, and you don't deserve God's grace. And they would just buzz in his ear like a mosquito, and he'd swat at it and not be able to get it out of the way. And finally, it said he, he spoke as it were to the devil and says, it's true. Everything you said is true. You can double the list and I'll add even more to it. But Jesus has paid for every single one of those sins. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's the conviction that you can have because God is for you and no charge will stick against God's elect. And the third suspicion is this. Will God allow something 
to come between me and him. Or we could put it this way. Is this trial in my life a proof that God loves me less? I asked you earlier, maybe you feel like God has withheld something from you that you feel like you need or you, you really want. You feel like it'd be good to have. And for some reason, God hasn't given it to you and feel like, is God really good? Or it could be that your struggle is that God has given me something I do not want. The logic of this passage is outstanding. Look at verse 38. All right, let's start in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul begins a catalog of all kinds of things that he's thinking of that could be potential arguments against God's love for him. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he says, as it is written, yeah, it, it's true. There are cases in which even Christians die because of their faith. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Will even this overcome God's love for us? And then he says with this note of triumph in verses Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying that nothing can be a wedge between you and God. Nothing is an argument that God loves you any less. Why? It all hinges on this preposition in. Remember I said I cried about the, four, the preposition for? I've cried about in too, okay? In. He doesn't say despite all these things. It's not as if there's this big balance scale, and on the one side we're putting evidence that God loves me, and the other side we're putting evidence that God doesn't love me. Over here I've got all these trials, I've got these, these bad things, the, the sickness, the, the temptations, the, the, the losses, and, and, and then I, I'm trying to look at, okay, God loves me, which is it going to weigh out? And it's not as if Paul's saying, in the end, all the, the evidence that God loves you is going is to outweigh all this evidence that He doesn't love you. No, what Paul is saying is this, take all the evidence that you think argues against God's love for you, and you put that on the side that God loves you. Why? Because it is not despite all these things that we are more than conquerors. It is in all these things. In other words, somehow these things become the waves on which you ride. I've had the opportunity of seeing amateur surfers at the beach. It's a kind of scary and sometimes disappointing experience. But when they catch a wave, it is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to see this wave that would normally kind of just pound someone down and they somehow ride it in. My friends, that's what it means to in all these things be a more than conqueror. It means that the waves that threaten to drown you actually become the very means by which God is bringing you to the shore of his love for you. That's what this means. Why? Because there is nothing outside the scope of his loving control of you. That means that you can list the things that came to your mind when I asked you about losses or deprivations or trials, and you can say, yes, even this, in this, God is loving me. How? Exactly how? I don't know. But I can say with the Apostle Paul that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's what it means that God is for you. This ends our series on Behold Your God. But I wanted it to end on a note in which we see God not just turned away from us, but has turned toward us. This is how we see who God is and what he's like. And your most urgent need this morning is to not turn away from him, but turn toward him. And the way you turn toward him is by trusting in what he has done for you and offering Jesus Christ as your savior. And you could do that this morning by calling out in faith to him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. It's a a good thing to have some silent meditation. We get so noisy, so busy, but, but hey, this morning, just think about what God has spoken to you about. Hey, I don't know what you're going through, but God does, and God had this all in mind when he brought you here this morning to hear this specific passage. So don't leave without responding to him. You've got to. You've got to. Hey, when you hear the voice of God speaking, don't, you, you dare not ignore it. If it's something that you've realized, man, I've been looking for good outside God's plan, and I've got to recognize that God is good, hey, you, you cry out to him and tell him that. Or if you need to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time, you've, you've thought you already did, but you realize you weren't, then do it. If you need to talk to somebody after the service, find a pastor, we'll be at that visitor's table. But don't leave here this morning. If you've prayed to Christ to trust in him for the first time, don't leave without telling somebody. We want to help you walk you through that. Our Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, continue this, this work of celebration that we'll be doing as we observe these baptisms. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.